Hello there and welcome to the RT Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures podcast, a reshaping of the iconic RT Thomas Davis Lectures, which considered radio to be a university of the air, sharing the scholarship and creative thinking that shapes public decision-making and makes sense of our present selves. I'm Cleonany Anlun, its producer. This episode presents the first lecture in the Davis Now Lectures Making Home series. It's titled Clearing Hovels and Building Homes, an Architectural History of Irish Housing, recorded with a public audience in Dublin, and it's delivered by the series consultant editor, architectural historian, Dr Ellen Rowley. This RTE series was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and academic partner, University College Dublin. Ellen, for you, history is not something that is finished from which you move on and draw a line under. We're probably going to hear a lot of that in your talk. Yeah, well, we will hear uh, my kind of mantra adopted from my teacher in Cambridge, Dalibor Vesely, that history is not the past, but the depth of the present. My way into history is through buildings, and architecture is a very particularly resilient medium. Uh, one, one condition which governs architecture is erasure, and also ever-changingness, because in this building we're in at the moment, it started life out as a, the house in the 1750s for some grand person or other, and then was bought in the 1770s and changed, and then to Dublin County Council. 1901 is the room that we're sitting in now, this timber-lined room. And today, Poetry Ireland is here and other cultural organisations. And the architect, Niall McCullough, is in the process of inscribing a new base for the building, the Seamus Heaney Library. So this example is, is a very live version of that point of history not being over, never been over. Well, we really look forward to your lecture, Ellen, which takes an architectural view of Ireland's housing and is entitled Clearing Hovels and Building Homes, an Architectural History of Housing in Ireland. Thank you. The Irish Countrywomen's Association had a magazine called Our Book, which in 1956 published an article about the effects of rural electrification on the farmhouse kitchen. Positioning kitchens as the starting point for all Irish life, the place where, and I quote, Irish history was made beneath their blackened rafters, the men of 1867 laid their plans. From their warmth, they emerged to shiver in the blinding snow of a March night. By their hearts, many of the men of 1916 were nurtured. But the writer, Ellen Casey, is restless. She wants it all. While seeking to banish drudgery from the 1950s rural Irish kitchen, she warns us, and again I quote, The danger is that these centres of Irish family life will become replicas of their counterparts in America and England, with their glistening gadgets and clinical air. We have our cookers, cleaners, heaters and fridges, but let us also have our St Bridget's crosses, our hand looms and the lingering traditions of the past. In so many ways, this sentiment from 1956 represents the development of housing in modern Ireland generally, in terms of its geography, in terms of its aspiration, but mostly in terms of its push and pull between tradition and progress, between the gleaming fridge and the sugon chair. For this lecture, I'm considering that push and pull. By overviewing a history of housing in Ireland from, say, the late 1700s, we will encounter again and again the cottage, later a bungalow, becoming in the town and city a terraced or row house or maybe an artisan dwelling. 
But the first and last thing to note in this Irish history is the persistence of the individual house as the most popular dwelling type. Most often, the individual house appears as a two-storey, pitch-through version, a medley of mass concrete, pebble dash, hedge and a hint of brick, set into a new suburban neighbourhood, a windy green field, formerly the countryside. Of course, that version is usually a 20th century house, constructed initially to satisfy slum clearance programmes to help solve the pretty much continuous housing crisis across the country over the past century. And that house type, making our so-called middle landscape, that is the architecture of ordinary life, is ultimately indebted to the whitewashed cottage, the most enduring, enwombing and aspirational of Irish buildings. Another remarkable aspect of Irish housing history is how it is at once a history of the everyday, of domestic and intimate lives, often nostalgic and always subjective. And yet, housing is the ultimate political tool. It is the stuff of public policy and its history creeps into official discourses. By the time of the new state in 1920s Ireland, and especially during the 1930s with the first Fianna Fáil government, labourers' cottages were built to stave off rural agitation. Not only was it perceived that decent housing would keep the rural class away from the political field, but housing provision was perceived as a key tool in public health reform. By 1950, Taoiseach John Costello stated, and I quote, the best way we can ensure that each person is a good citizen is to give everyone a stake in the country. And the way in which we can do that is to give him his own home. Of course, Costello and his peers, going back a generation, were trying to eradicate slums. Slums which had been inherited from the coloniser, but by the mid-20th century still weren't going away. This was a longer story, reaching back to the days of landless labourers and tenant farmers, back to Quaker industrial villages and absentee landlords. In fact, the majority of Ireland's population inhabited insubstantial homes during the 18th, 19th and into the early 20th centuries. The 1841 census showed that 40% of the country's total housing stock was made up of two to four roomed dwellings. But stop. Pause momentarily. It strikes me, and certainly as I've been trying to cut through the research and evidence around housing to make this lecture, I keep coming up with or against a set of dualities, almost opposites or binaries. Inadequate dwelling versus bungalow mansion, house versus flat, domestic versus politic, need versus plenty, suburbia versus city, urban versus rural, public versus private, communality versus individualism. This is a complex business, this housing lark. And, as the other lectures in the series relate, our home is our first and last place. It is at once the essence of human experience to dwell. And then politically, it is the hardest place. If we want housing for all, we must make those hard economic and political choices. And probably most resoundingly from this series, which is why history is kicking the series off, followed closely by technology, housing reminds us that history is not the past, but the depth of the present. As such, when I'm thinking about housing history, I'm thinking about lessons learnt or not learnt, about history's circularity, 
about where our obsession with our own front door and our own patch of land comes from, about how the family hubs, or in a different way, certain direct provision centres are a contemporary way of sheltering out of sight those most in need, and in that they are emotional echoes of those handsome and robust 1840s workhouses. I like architecture to take the lead. For me, it's the most compelling of cultural experiences, more compelling than a painting, more enlightening than the political archive of a statesperson. And so even though this is reductive, I'm going to tell our social history through two housing strains, the individual house on the one hand, and then through aspects of communal housing on the other. Possibly the origin of our preference for the individual home in Ireland, and certainly the most modest of that type in history, was known variously as a hut, a cabin or a hovel. We don't hear much today about these cabins. They were the dwellings of the peasantry and little of their built fabric survives. Usually windowless, single-storey spaces erected out of mud, turf or wattle walls with a timber structure plastered then with cow dung. Histories of these houses come from travellers' observations and artists' sketches, all capturing squalid, damp and smoke-filled living conditions. Because of the cabin's temporary nature, I conject that Irish labourers and their families were nomadic, moving perhaps between pastures according to season and work. In so many ways, the cabin then reveals history. Its appearance and disappearance reflected the vagaries of local land politics. With the Great Famine of the 1840s, thousands upon thousands of Irish cabin dwellers died or emigrated. Alongside the cabin, the tenant farmer lived in a more solid structure, the cottage or vernacular farmhouse. These were rectangular, so-called long houses, with single chimneys, the hearth, placed near one entrance, and a projecting bed pod or outshot, thought to be for the couple of the house. Making an architecture, most usually thatched, which predates any sense of push and pull between modernity and tradition. It is self-built, it is about utility as survival, it is the traditional Irish house, standing on some sense of its own land, and it proliferated outside of discussions of modernity. Oblivious to the rising awareness of public hygiene, which increasingly, from the late 18th and through the 19th century, spurred on the wealthier classes to provide different forms of mass housing for their workers and for the ordinary people in Ireland. In those more established domains or estates, and in market towns and Irish cities, a new type of ordinary house was emerging. The planned scheme. I'm thinking of, say, Staplestown in County Carlow, or later, Westport, County Mayo, and on a grander scale, of Perry Square in Limerick. As the ordinary house in Ireland moved from self-build project to planned scheme, the terrace became housing's key expression. Unsurprisingly, its origins were economic, where two or more cottages shared their party walls, they became less expensive to construct. With the terrace, here was a technology and structure adopted for the local aristocrat, the 18th century brick townhouse, the Georgian. Speculated and streamlined then for the merchant, miniaturised finally for the worker. The terrace, this sharing of walls, enabled a fairly rash spread of housing, hand in hand with industrialisation and new railways. 
In Belfast, for instance, as with other industrial British cities, the housing stock came out of the place's workforce needs. Streets and streets of low-rise, red-brick terraced houses, termed bylaw housing, were constructed through the city from 1850 onwards. In Limerick, Dublin and Cork, working-class schemes came later and were mostly constructed by dwelling companies. But again, the choice model was the low-rise terraced house. A major player to emerge from the late 1870s was the Dublin Arson Dwelling Company, which by 1908 was responsible for 3,500 homes in Dublin, housing 16,000 tenants. Consider the grid streets of its biggest scheme at Stony Batter, Ivor Street, Citric Road, Viking Road, Manor Place, where the red and yellow brick walls disclosed thousands of working class lives, artisan lives, where artisan occupations were described in the 1901 and 1911 census as clerk, seamstress, van man, laundress, or IC officer. Only the best behaved and best employed could rent one of these houses, and no pubs were ever allowed onto these schemes. Overcrowding was not permitted, but subletting was. Thus, the Macdonough family, comprising two adults and five children in a type D five-roomed house on Manor Place, had a lodger. All toilets were outdoors, coupled with the coal shed. In fact, in the Dublin of 1900, flush toilets were only an emerging technology. And as all privies, dry or flushable, were deeply distrusted due to the evils of sewer gases as the primary cause of cholera, toilets were only commonly brought indoors into the ordinary houses of ordinary Dubliners from the mid-1930s. But importantly, these terraced housing schemes provided straightforwardly reliable, even excellent accommodation. Only five house types were used, and the standardisation of materials and building elements meant for the seamless replication of dwellings, nudging these individual homes into the territory of collective mass housing. But as far as this lecture goes, I'm still firmly within the territory of the individual and individualist home probably the champion of which in the context of Irish history is the bungalow, the phenomenon of the one-off house whose spread and formulaic design have led to nicknames like Bungalow Blitz and Mac Bungalow. Typologically, the bungalow is a combination of vernacular cottage and big house. It is an unattached building set into its own differentiated landscape and onto which social status is inscribed. Here again, there is the push of the modern, the need for progress on the one hand, and the pull back to the land, to the so-called traditional on the other hand. The bungalow is the house form of the Irish countryside and is wrapped up in national narratives of a pre-modern, idealised rural Ireland, signifier of nostalgia, land and landscape ownership. During the last decades of the 20th century, Following the publication of the Department of Local Government's House Plans from 1960s and Jack Fitzsimons' famous pattern book Bungalow Bliss from 1971 onwards, we have seen increasing numbers of large dormer bungalow houses sitting atop rural sites parallel to principal roads and sporting decadent boundary walls, porches and large picture windows. As they have sprouted up in areas of natural rural beauty, big new bungalows are considered Ireland's greatest 
post-1970s planning blight, stimulating largely urban rage from journalists, from architectural critics and from other members of a somehow dissociated urban middle class who stridently dismiss bungalows as products of aesthetic impoverishment, as kitsch housing writ large on the Irish landscape. This battle of taste, of values, of spiritual versus material ownership is still fearsomely present in Ireland today, manifest in the planning laws, the broadband provision and the wind farm construction. Why should Eugene, the urban professional, influence whether or not Michelle, the newly married second daughter of the farmer, get to build her larger open plan version of the family home in the next field? Once more, the singular issue of housing highlights deep societal divides, in this case, the rural-urban divide. Arguably throughout Irish history, rural experience was primary. Certainly the new state concentrated on rural housing, at first in a bid to continue the reform of the 1880s land legislation, later as an exercise to stem the tide of rural depopulation euphemistically referred to from the 1920s as the drift from the countryside. This was in fact leading to mass emigration, mostly to British cities and to the swelling of Dublin during these decades. All the while, as if in denial, Ireland's governors favoured the social economic infrastructure of the single family small holding, a model coming from the papal encyclical of 1931, that is, from the Vatican which in Ireland was translated as the right to live in an ordinary house on a plot of one's own land in a fresh air environment. This right was championed above all other housing considerations, fueling the ecologically aggressive policy of building on greenfield sites, a policy which persisted through Irish housing peaks in the 1930s, 1950s, 1970s and 1990s. Why build homes in cities and towns with their complicated planning permissions, their historic contexts and their ready-made social infrastructures, especially when, by the 1940s and the sustained psychological damage of overcrowded tenements, the Irish city centre as a place to live had become obsolete? With this question, this why build homes in Irish cities and towns, I move the discussion from the individual home to the struggle with more communal housing types in the history of domestic Irish architecture. By struggle, I mean the struggle of the Irish official, a struggle which, from the dawn of organised communal housing, as in the flat building programme of the 1930s in Dublin, officials and housing professionals used terms like drudgery, cramped, confined, to describe these new flats. But these 1930s and 1940s flat buildings were in the start welcomed into the city centre as relief projects, covering over the shame of slums. In certain neighbourhoods like the Monto, the flat block sought to erase layers of prostitution and crime. At the back of the forecourts, they delivered decent homes to the market workers, albeit stacked up homes. As the flats were being happily occupied by tenement families, their makers were already discounting them as less than healthy homes. 
the perception was that the new flat block architecture offered no private green space for the individual, but more pointedly, flats brought too much shared space. Not only that, but by 1938, it was calculated that a four-roomed flat in Dublin city centre was almost twice as expensive to construct as a four-roomed house in a new suburban housing colony like Crumlin. And yet more surprising still, a new flat commanded less rent than did a new house. So again, from the outset of the 1930s slum clearance project, the new communal housing was associated with the poorest of the poor. It was more costly to build, and it was considered by the official class to be psychologically and maybe even morally unhealthy. But physically, flats were deemed to be an improvement, an improvement on tenement living, and that brings us to the source of this official scepticism and fear of communal living in urban Ireland, the tenements. The classic Dublin, and to a lesser extent, Cork and Limerick tenement, was a large, formerly grand, single-family house. From studies of tenements in parts of Dublin, on Henrietta Street, for example, it is known that as many as 100 people in 17 households shared an always open front door, a dark, ominous stairwell, and up to, but never more than, three toilets. Nobody had a private bathroom. The gas supply throughout each tenement house was erratic, and there was limited electricity, only from the late 1940s. As described in Sean O'Fuelan's magazine The Bell, where a Dublin tenement dweller was interviewed in 1940, tenement dwelling, also referred to as slum living, was communal in nature. Entitled I Live in a Slum, the interview was with a 36-year-old father of five who, while lamenting his unemployed status as a casual docker, gave a bare-bones account of living in a house with 55 other people, one toilet, no gas, he said. My wife and I like all the noise of people in the house. There's a lot of singing. Now and then there are rows. Sometimes we laugh at the rows too. Once there was a woman in a room below us who used to cry. We all hated her and got the landlord to get her into another house. The only thing wrong with our room is it slopes. Our bed is under the slope. We make a bed on the floor every night for the kids. We try to train them to do without a bucket in the room, especially during the night. When my wife has washing to do, I carry up the water first and then take the children out. She parks the baby on some woman in some other room. I lounge around and watch the lads play. There is a rat under the boards. Sometimes I borrow the trap and set it and leave a light on the lamp. I put the children into my bed and I sleep on the floor and listen to the rat tearing under the boards. Most powerful for me here is the lack of domestic technology still by 1940, along with the overwhelming sense of sharing, of communality, of community, of carrying buckets of water upstairs, of minding one another's children, such were the rituals of everyday life in a tenement home. Another source for tenement history is the brilliantly evocative 
but largely forgotten novel, The Country Woman, by Dubliner Paul Smith. Written in 1962 and immediately banned due to its depiction of marital rape and clerical cruelty, the novel tells the story of Molly Baines, originally from Wicklow, but by the 1920s when the novel is set, she is living in an overcrowded tenement lane in Dublin's Portobello, with too many children and a horror of a husband, the villain of the piece, Pat Baines. Pat Baines comes and goes, disturbing the impoverished, but fundamentally all right, life of the family in their tenement room. And interestingly, when Pat has used up all the goodwill of the local tenement community, he takes refuge in the South Dublin Workhouse Union, which is simply referred to as the Union in the novel. As such, in this portrait of the 1920s working class city, there are two domestic communal sanctuaries. The relatively nurturing space of the tenements and then the beleaguered, quite desperate workhouse union. Arguably, the workhouse has occupied a large place in the Irish literary imagination. But what of its capacity as a communal home? What of its architecture? What of its intent to house hundreds of inmates, as the residents were called, in a systematically designed, controlling space? Maybe, just as the cabin represents a starting point for individualist housing in Irish history, the workhouse becomes its communal counterpart. Developed out of the new Irish Poor Law of 1838, the 130 workhouses which were scattered throughout Ireland were designed by a single architect, George Wilkinson, in a type of one-size-fits-all manner. Ireland's workhouses were architecturally impressive, deploying locally quarried stone, and they were usually two to three times the size of their English and Welsh counterparts, thereby reflecting local social conditions and the real extent of poverty in Ireland from the 1840s until their transformation under the new Irish Free State. Workhouses were built as the state-sponsored place to offer relief, bringing greater control into the area of charity and provision. If you needed help and shelter, you had little choice after this 1838 law, but to come to your local workhouse union, where upon arrival you were forcibly bathed in an intake bath and segregated according to gender and age. Wilkinson's architecture enabled this segregation with separate ranges for women, men, children, and each communal ward had its own dedicated exercise yard. Workhouses physically remain in our landscape. Some with Irish independence became county hospitals. Some were left derelict, some were destroyed or dismantled. The North Dublin Workhouse Union, for example, continues altered as a place of communal home, of shelter in the form of the Morning Star Hostel beside Grange Gorman campus. And indeed, the second lecture in our series, Making Home, comes from Callan Workhouse Union, which today is a space for artists and community activity in County Kilkenny. So there is that physical continuity. But more than that, I would point to the metaphysical or glibly emotional continuity of the workhouse 
as a means of communal collective sheltering in a deeply controlled and disabling fashion, evidenced problematically in some of Ireland's direct provision centres. And I'm thinking specifically of the Butlands, then Mosney family holiday camp from 1948 in County Meath, which following its lease to the Irish Naturalisation and Immigration Service after 2000, has housed people coming from other countries seeking asylum here in Ireland, gated and out of the way. The communal dormitory may have been replaced by the single family chalet, but the shared facilities of such places and of the new family hubs which house some of Ireland's 10,000 plus homeless people remind me at least of the workhouse solution. Is it too much to suggest a continuity, an architectural thread or seam of continuity, bringing us from the workhouse's typology to the Magdalen Laundry, to direct provision, to family hub. All offer home, albeit temporary home, in a communal setting and under heavily controlled conditions. And all of these homes are about othering, about enforcing difference, about making clear that these communal homes are not as good as, are not a reward, are not as beneficial for the self as the individual home. To nuance that, as a final point before I conclude, I come back to flats in Irish housing history. Flats do provide an element of individual space within the communal situation of a flat block. However, as the April 1952 Irish Times editorial stated, and I quote, flats cannot satisfy that instinct which exists in nearly every Irish man and woman to possess a home of their own when the same landing is shared with half a dozen other families, end of quote. So taking that official middle-class perspective, it would seem that flats could never be deemed proper homes in the Irish context. I would argue that the whole design premise of Irish flats, well, Dublin flats from the 1930s through the 1970s, was about exploding the tenement hall and stair. By this I mean, Dublin's flats were designed to bring out into the open such subversive communal interior spaces as the tenement hall and stair, where all sorts of canoodling and unmonitored behaviour took place. Therefore, those first flats of the Irish Free State, those 1930s and 1940s brick flats by Dublin housing architect Herbert Sims and his team, are immediately recognisable by their rear courtyards accessed by limited entry points onto which feed the flats, decks or galleries. Circulation is brought outside to the open air. All is to be surveyed and passively policed. Dublin's post-tenement flat blocks were, like their precedent workhouses, conditioned by a culture of surveillance and understood in the cityscape as somewhat different. In conclusion then, this reminds us that the city, any city, is really only an intense historical place made up of homes, communal and individual, modern and traditional. And the countryside likewise is inscribed by homes. As for the suburb, it is nothing but homes. The home is our first and last place, and studying its architectural history throws light upon where we go next.
Thank you. Dr. Ellen Rowley there with her lecture, Clearing Hovels and Building Homes, An Architectural History of Housing in Ireland. Ellen, thank you very much. Um, I'll bring in Sorsha O'Brien. You're a design historian. Um, would you have a comment coming from Ellen's lecture? Because I'm a design historian, we work within architecture. We work looking at interiors and looking at objects. And one of the things that actually struck me about Alan's talk is that there's an another divide within the history of Irish housing, which is that between people who rent and people who buy. So, and that touches everything that you've talked about from the status of tenants on agricultural land to the current issues of housing, where you've a whole generation of people being priced out of the market for buying houses, as well as issues of direct provision. And it has a lot of effect on our population and you know who lives where and in what conditions. But it also has an effect on the houses and the interiors as well, and the exteriors. Where I live in the North Dublin suburbs, one of the big symbols of ownership of an ex-council house is to have neoclassical columns put beside the door. So you've got these the columns of the big house on your own small house in the suburbs. The other thing that Alan was talking about was the ICA article on rural electrification. I found really interesting because it's this issue about tradition and modernity again and her concerns that we were going to end up with these gleaming universal kitchens that would be indistinguishable from something in America or in Britain. My research has been looking into that time period of the 50s and 60s. What I found is that until you actually hit the 1970s and the publication of Bungalow Bliss, the reality of the Irish farmhouse kitchen is quite a particular hybrid form. It's something that's quite in between the traditional farmhouse kitchen that's organized around the open hearth and then between that and the fitted kitchen. You have freestanding electrical appliances rather than fitted ones sprinkled in amongst settle beds and shoe-gone chairs. I think looking at the development of domestic technology in Ireland during this time period, for, largely for economic reasons, you have the purchase and the take-up of electrical appliances being quite slow. But the most popular appliance from the ESB statistics from the archive is very much the electric iron. It makes a huge inroads wow. into the Irish kitchen. But actually, the most significant one from all of the, the oral history work that we've done is the washing machine. It made the biggest difference to women's lives. Even though the ESB figures from 1970 pointed out that there's only 30% of Irish homes actually had a washing machine. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. In the research that we undertook, for instance, for the Tenement Museum, 14 Henrietta Street, with Charles Duggan of Dublin City Council, one story was about a family who moved from 14 to Donny Carney. And when they arrived there, um, he was a, a kid, and this man's mother tore off a piece of paper and, and held it up to the bulb in the new house. The idea being that you would always create a light and, and heat from a, a naked flame. That's, you know, at, at once like charming and naive, but it's also very potent. I mean, that was 1949. Research that myself and Joe Brady, who's also here, have done around the reconditioning by Dublin Corporation of Georgian buildings into these, there were these concrete structures with asbestos cement roofs behind Georgian facades on Sean McDermott Street, Gardner Street, North Great Georgia Street. 
street, they had fitted kitchens and windows that could barely open for fear that the residents would use the light wells on the other side of the windows as rubbish chutes. You know, really low opinion of the residents, actually. Those kitchens were from 1943 and they were very radical, those built-in kitchens in the reconditioned houses. So they're two, two things that come to mind. I'll bring Joseph Brady in there, who you referred to, geography as your discipline. One of the things that struck me was we hear comment these days about how people would have to accommodate themselves to not owning their property. And yet, while ownership levels in Ireland have generally been high for much of the 20th century, most people in this city rented right up until the middle 1960s. Ownership was probably just as common in social housing as it was in private until that time. I mean, the question of ownership into the future. In the fourth lecture in our series, Michelle Norris's lecture, Unmaking Home, Homes for Shelter, Homes for Investment, deals specifically with that issue over time from the 1930s. So just in response to that, that first issue about Dublin as a city of renters. If I could move on maybe to a, a point that you were making about the individual home versus the communal home, the flat as it were. I mean, what often strikes me is how the flat complexes in Dublin were given the added cachet of fancy names. We lived in mansions, gardens, and they were all religious. St. Teresa's Gardens, Fatima Mansions, and we had, of course, St. Mary's Mansions just down the road. But there was a view which was generally shared, and, and I think much more widely shared, if I may suggest, than those who were in positions of power and influence, that this was a transitional phase until incomes rose sufficiently. I mean, the prospect of being uprooted from inner city locations to raw suburban locations was traumatic. But I'd suggest it was more the fear of dislocation than it was the form of living. The middle classes did not live in flats in Dublin until the first attempt is 1950s, 55 Mespel. Uh, one just south of the Grand Canal. You needed, you needed something to differentiate them. You needed something to separate them. So the apartment sounded posh, sounded posher than flat. And it was as simple as that. But the take-up amongst those who could have lived in uh, communal uh, accommodation was fairly low. You had, you had difficulties with renting these in the 50s and 60s and into the 1970s. In the early 1990s, when the Celtic Tiger thing was just getting going, a survey was done by the Institute of Surveyors who went and spoke to the, the middle classes who were rediscovering the inner city. Most of them expected to spend no longer than five years before they would get out of where they were. Having lived the bohemian life of the inner city, they would head out to suburban bliss. Lisa O'Connor, you live not that far from here. You're in um, one of Sims' flat complexes. What do you make of what Ellen had to say? And you might tell us about what it is to live in one of the flats that we're talking about that Ellen described. Well, just thank you very much, Ellen. This has actually been a very big education for myself and Joanna here. We knew nothing about Herbert Sims or the architecture or our flats. We live in St. Mickens or I'm at being told the last couple of days the actual proper pronunciation is Mikens. So, and like that, it's all from Saints. It's around the area. Dublin's not in a city. And to bring it back to the architecture, we were nominated for Dublin's Pride of Place and we did a little video about what it was like to live in the flats. And we had uh, people there who were born and bred in them, moved into them from Henrietta Street and about the gas and the, the lighting and things like that. And at the time, they were considered 
cream of the crop, do you know, but anything would have been considered better than the tenements in it. Uh, they, I don't think they were built as forever houses, especially not nowadays. And so, harkening back there to what the previous uh, people were saying, we have people who live in the flats who have delusions of grandeur as well. We have the pillars. We have the lions. <laughs> Even in the two-bedroom flat in Dublin, not in the city, we have all that. But um, they weren't built for washing machines, they weren't built for showers, and at the same time, people still want to live there. What you're saying in your lecture there, bringing it back to communal living now and direct, direct provision, it's going back to the original state of play. Those houses weren't designed for forever homes. People were just a quick footfall, lived there for so many years. But we've got generations living in those flats and they wouldn't give them up. And I just think it's just coming around full circle again with communal developments, the direct provision. They're going from one bad to another and it's going to go back to where we find ourselves in the flats now. will find themselves in where we are now in another couple of years. But thank you very much. Really interesting. I really enjoyed it. Dohi Downey, you're a house or a home practitioner. You're, you're part of Dublin's housing observatory. It was Neville Chamberlain who coined the phrase that council housing, public housing, would be the bulwark against Bolshevism in Britain. And he also pointed out the fact that council housing was of a higher standard and would continue to be, and would lead to improvements, not only in space standards, but in the layout and the opportunity to learn and to be educated, because you will learn and you'll be educated close to the place of your work, and that these places would be planned for, they would be integrated. They would be, therefore, places where we would habit and form homes. And it echoes another person, this guy called Henri Lefebvre. Lefebvre said that, a home and language are two complementary aspects of human being. That even the most derisive and everyday existence retains a trace of grandeur and spontaneous poetry. I think that's lovely. Because we use all sorts of terms to describe how we feel today about where we live, whether it's a kip or a palace, whether it's great or not, whether I love this street or I love my flats, or whether I'm happy calling it a flat. And I am, I think flat's great, actually. I think apartment is a part. So I think we need to look again at our language to construct the type of meaning that brings us forward and that Ellen has warned us against a, re a, re a retreat into in the past. Hi, um, my name is Gwen and I work, uh, this is my colleague Aileen, we both work for Cluid Housing, providing social housing you know, all over Ireland. And my question for Ellen is just kind of looking back over history and the provision of social housing, can you think of just some um, decisions that were made in either planning, design or policy that really worked to create homes, not just houses for social housing? Gwen, I remember hearing from um, my friend Kay Foran about how the flats that she grew up in or knew about uh, in Killarney Street, there were, first of all, you can see it on the drawings, the concierges houses or caretakers houses. Um, so those original uh, schemes all had provision for caretakers. But also she was telling me about when she had a new baby that you would go to a small like local clinic in the scheme where you'd pick up your dried milk. So the first flats were conceived of as these more holistic communities. And also Herbert Sims again didn't want schemes like Marrowbone Lane to open until the playground was constructed. And those schemes also also would have had drying sheds for laundry and pram sheds, many of which have been taken down. Um, and obviously the technology has been brought indoors now as well. So overall, those endeavours in the 1930s, 40s and 50s were very much with community in mind, but it, it wasn't um, seen through, if you like. My name is Liam Heafy. I'm also at 
University College Dublin and I'm looking at the question of ownership and history in relation to towns versus the one-off house. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the origins of, of the bungalow in terms of its colonial history and how that appeared in Ireland and what elements from that continue on. The bungalow, Anthony King has written really interesting history on the post as a post-colonial entity. It comes from India and then is adopted into Britain. So it's a reverse of colonizer. I would source the bungalow with the whitewashed cottage, that vernacular type. So that's where I was coming from with that reference. And then, of course, our version of a villa is the big house uh, within its walls on its own estate, on its own differentiated land. So effectively, a bungalow is a miniaturised version of that, is the argument. I was using research by an artist, Eva McNamara, who decided to really tackle this to find out where was the appetite coming from and why should the urban commentator cast uh, such a, a derogatory light, if you like, on this housing type. Um, Mary Laheen, architect and teacher in uh, UCD School of Architecture. Just on the question of the bungalow, I just wanted to um, make the point that our landscape reflects land ownership patterns in Ireland. So when you go to countries like England or Scotland or Spain, you don't have a proliferation of houses across the countryside because people don't own the land. And because the 19th century was a century of successful civil disobedience campaigns and a policy on the part of the British government um, of appeasement, probably with the thought that people who owned land would not rebel or become revolutionaries, and they were wrong on that one. It's not just a question of loose planning or what some people perceive as bad taste, but it's the fact that people own the land. So this is something that we need to take into account when we're managing our landscape, and it's one of the reasons why we have to manage our landscape with community in mind, because the community owns the landscape. Dr. Ellen Rowley, I'd like to thank you for your lecture the first in the series on the subject of making home. We started in the capital city here in 11 Parnell Square. May I take this chance to thank all the contributors and you, the audience, for being with us. Join us next time when Dr. Linda Doyle will deliver her lecture, Bricks, Mortar and Data, from Union Workhouse, Callan, County Kilkenny. Do join us then. Further information on the Davis Now Lectures is available on the RTE programme website and you can also access the Davis Now Lectures podcast wherever you get yours. Mm -hmm.